Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This government does believe that those with the broadest shoulders should pay a higher rate of tax. We will therefore add a new income tax band to the Scottish system, the advanced rate, which will be set at 45 pence and will apply on incomes between 75,000 and 125,140. Hello and welcome to Holyrood Sources. We're recording on Wednesday the 20th of December. I'm Callum MacDonald and here... On the podcast, the Mr. and Mrs. Claus of political analysis, the dancer and prancer, the mistletoe and wine, Jeff Aberdeen and Andy McKeever. Hello. Hello. I'd be very careful with who's the Mr. Claus and who's Mrs. Claus here. I don't mind being wine. I don't mind being prancer, but I ain't being Mrs. I'll tell you that right now. I'm more worried about the dancer and prancer, if I'm being honest with you. Well... Uh, you can email hello at hollyroodsources.com. Who's who? Uh, coming up on the podcast, <laughs> this is our budget special. Uh, we've got Sarah Cham, the CEO of Prosper Scotland, and we've got Mary Spowage, director at the Fraser of Allender Institute. So they're going to get into the budget for us in depth. Uh, Jeff and Andy are obviously here as well to consider exactly what it all means, what the fallout is, what the politics of the whole thing is. Jeff, actually, let's start with you because you had the Deputy First Minister, the Finance Secretary, at a kind of post-budget event in Edinburgh this morning. Um, for those who are only listening to the podcast, Jeff has Edinburgh Castle as his backdrop today, which is very, very nice. Uh, so you're, you're in Edinburgh just now. You had Shona Robson there. The event was organised by True North. What, what was her kind of message? What was she getting at? What was she trying to communicate this morning by way of, I suppose, selling the budget, frankly? Well, interesting, interesting way of putting it. I mean, I thought she did a very good job in defending her budget. And that's the point, isn't it? And I, I felt that it was a very defensive performance from her yesterday. It was, a, it was perfectly good defence. But nonetheless, this is one of the few opportunities you get as a government, set-piece opportunities, to really go out and say, this is who our government is and this is who we uh, support. This is what we stand for um, on a proactive sense. And of course, because of the, the challenging conditions, and some of that is no doubt uh, linked to uh, Westminster, uh, given uh, a majority of the uh, fiscal levers um, uh, do reside with Westminster. And so the Scottish government is, in fairness, one hand tied behind his back and all this. But nonetheless, it was a very defensive performance. And I feel that the big showstopper, 
in the income tax, the, the, the increase in the top rate and the additional threshold, the new advanced rate, has been well briefed about a week to 10 days ago. It came as no surprise. And yet in that period, we haven't really seen the Scottish government sell uh, why that's important to do. Uh, we've had a lot of speculation. There's been a lot of negative commentary, and there's not really been any resistance to that or another point of view put forward in that intervening period. So when the news finally was confirmed yesterday, you're already speaking from a negative premise. And I do think from a political communication point of view, the Scottish government should have been much more front-footed in terms of this particular uh, policy area. None of that's to say that the financial conditions aren't difficult, but Politics is about choices, and these are the choices that the Scottish government are pursuing, and we're right to scrutinise and, where possible, criticise that and also commend it where there are opportunities and positive things in that budget, which we'll no doubt get into in today's discussion. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned the the, uh, the tax bans, which is definitely the kind of headline stealer. So Sean Robson introduced a new tax ban. It is the sixth tax band in Scotland. That compares with three in England. It affects 114,000 workers on salaries between £75,000 and £125,000, and a further 40,000 people paying the top rate for those earning more than £125,000. So Scotland's top earners will pay an extra penny on the pound between £125,140 and the rate rises from 47p to 48p. She's also frozen the 42% rate at £43,662. And we'll get into kind of more of the numbers, but that is the kind of tax banned top lines. And with that in mind, Andy, I've actually I've been looking through the front pages of the papers today, all right, in preparation of uh, for the podcast. The Times, thousands pay more tax in chaotic use of budget. The Herald fears as Robinson targets high earners in tax sting. The Scottish Daily Express nightmare SNP Christmas budget for thousands of Scots. Finance Secretary Robinson's raid on our pockets as SNP tries to fill £1.5 billion black hole. I'm going to go on. The Daily Telegraph, Scotland braced for triple blow on taxation. Uh, the Scotsman, tax and cut. Uh, the Daily Record, all pain, no gain. Scots forced to pay more tax while services are cut. I mean, these are not good headlines. The Scottish Sun, Mrs. Claus, spelt C-L-A-W-S. I mean, what what do you make of this? Um, well, this is what happens when you lose the economy. You know, losing economy, uh, you then start to lose elections. And I think the, the, uh, there's been a lot of talk in the last day or so about... Uh, the business community and business reaction, and that's that's valid. I, you know, I, uh, but it affects people. I think that's the thing people forget. This is actually also about people and individual behaviour as much as it is about business. I got a text yesterday afternoon from a client who's uh, chief executive of a of a Scottish SME, um, who's actually a nationalist and an SNP supporter, who texted me yesterday afternoon and said, the text just read, they just don't get it, do they? Uh, and that is very much the feeling that you're getting, not just in the business community, but as you can see by these headlines, you're starting to get that feeling um, out in the country as well. One of the, We can go in a little bit to the uh, the so-called advanced rate, which is a bit of a misnomer if I've ever heard one, um, and the uh, increase at the top as well. But one of the most significant things, of course, that's happening is the hold uh, in the um, uh, in the threshold, um, forty three thousand pounds is not 
does not constitute a rich person. To earn £42,000, or £43,000, I should say, you are bracketing there all teachers who served more than three years as a teacher. Um, all doctors above the status of what you used to call the senior house officer, so two years qualified, all doctors, all nurses above band six, um, every single police officer other than early constables, these these are not rich people. These are strugglers and strivers, and they are paying a lot. They are paying more than fifty percent of their earnings in tax. That's their marginal tax rate on the last pound they earned is over fifty percent. Taking half of their money from them is very very difficult. It is economically difficult, and it's politically difficult as well. And when you start doing that, you start to lose them. These are people who supported the SNP for years and years and years, and they are just going to lose them. I want to come in on that point, Andy, because I was about to make it myself. Um, 650,000 people are now captured by this uh, uh, high rate of tax, they're calling it. Not the advance to the top, the higher rate of tax. And Andy just eloquently listed the types of professions that are captured in that higher rate of tax. That is the constituency the SNP have relied upon since 2007, largely. That aspirational, want to get on in life, um, middle of the road, salt of the air workers. Now, only time will tell how these people respond to this budget. But my, oh my, this is a big, big challenge for the SNP going into an election year. And I believe that if there is a May election or a September election, these uh, changes will take effect in the start of the next financial year, which will be in April, just in time for that election cycle. I mean, has the makings of and a perfect storm, does it not? Yeah, it absolutely does. And the other thing about that as well is this is not just... So the high taxes are one side of the balance sheet. The other side is the, to put a business phrase on it, is the return on investment of these people for their taxes. Now, what the yep. Scottish government would want is the impression that, yes, you, you earn over £28,000 and you're paying higher taxes, but look at all of the stuff you get for those higher taxes. But the problem with that is that there's no evidence whatsoever that our NHS is any better than England's NHS. In fact, there's some evidence that's worse. There's lots of evidence that our schools are worse than English schools. In fact, you can't get any evidence our schools are better than English schools. You then look at something which the Scottish government will often and say to say, oh, but we pay for free tuition, quote unquote, free tuition fees at university. Well, actually, if you live in a postcode that is not massively deprived, you have a lot of trouble getting into a Scottish university if you're a Scottish kid because you don't pay and they can't afford to take you. So you end up going down to an English university anyway and paying fees down there. So where is the return on that investment for a taxpayer? The diff that's the that's the that's the other part of this squeeze. One side of the vice, right, is high taxes, but but the other side of the vice is you're not getting anything for them. And when you put those two things together, that is politically absolutely toxic. And I'm struggling at the moment to see that there are enough people in government who get that. I don't know if they get that. Yeah. I mean, if I may, Callum. Um, yeah, please. We've covered in this podcast in the last wee while the sense of identity crisis that might be transcending the SNP right now, almost saying, who are you for? Answering that question is fundamental in politics. Who are we for? 
and I'm not sure the SNP really know yet under the, the new leadership of, of, of Hamza Yusuf who they're for. And that's very difficult in a political climate um, that you're going into an election period particularly. And I, I also said last week that budgets are very tricky processes to go through from a government perspective. There's no bad causes, so to speak. Everyone's got a legitimate claim to seek more funding. But if you haven't identified yourself and, and in terms of what it is that you stand for, what is your overriding priority for your the country, then it's very difficult to justify the decisions that you have to make, the difficult ones, and yes, the more positive ones as well. And I think that's something that really is uh, encapsulating the SNP, and it's very problematic, and it's something they need to address in short order. Do you know what was instructive yesterday as well? It's what Labour did. So <clears throat> here's Labour, <throat> the party of the left, the party of the worker. And remember, a lot of these high-tax proposals came from the STUC. Um, and what did, but Labour didn't even blink. Labour didn't even give a second thought to backing these tax rises. They immediately and very clearly came out and said, this is, this is not acceptable. Because they are, ironically, as I mentioned earlier, all these, a list of all these workers who are going to be paying more for less. Labour have instinctively said, I'm on their side. Yeah. Taxes are not going up. I mean, you know, this is politics, right? But that, but that, but that labor have labor would not naturally want to plant their tanks necessarily right on that lawn. But that's where they are because they know that's where elections are won. We've said it before, but it's the 2007 SNP election playbook being played back at the SNP by the Labour mm -hmm. Party. Yeah. And paying more for less that Andy's just said there is a very snappy election campaigning slogan, is it not? And an easy one to sell. Um, I just want to put... Well, sorry, on that, the, the Scottish Liberal Democrats, the Scottish Liberal Democrats will be, I'm sure, behind that, Andy, given that you're instrumental to their strategy. <laughs> I forgot I was with them now. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. Remember, remember. remember. Uh, I, I think the argument. only political party I've not been accused of being a spokesman for or a member of is the Greens. <laughs> <It's> the Greens. <laughs> Nobody's yeah, ever said that. There's no doubt on that one, I don't think. Uh, can I put this to you, which I caught from Andrew Neil? Uh, broadcaster, journalist, etc. Uh, state spending now accounts for over 50% of Scottish GDP, excluding North Sea oil. So it follows that Scottish people will have to pay more in tax to fund that level of spending. He says, they voted for big spending governments since the day Holyrood was established, so they can't complain about higher taxes now. Scottish taxes would be even higher, including a much higher basic rate of income tax, if it wasn't for the multi-billion pound subsidy Scotland gets from Westminster, which pays for a lot of the extra public spending. Uh, this is what we voted for, is Andrew Neil's point. Andy McKeever. Um, yes, because there isn't a centre-right party that you can vote for. I mean, we had this argument a little bit with Douglas Ross in a good-natured way last week, yeah. uh, that Scotland is unique, completely unique, uh, in that because the party of the centre-right is so tied up in the constitutional argument, mm -hmm. if you are a sort of Scotland-first pro-Scottish uh, person, but you also belong to the centre-right, you're far more likely to vote for somebody else than vote for the Tories. And what that has done is it has created a situation where there is no credible route to government for a centre-right party. Uh, and the constitutional argument has also created a situation where the party of the centre-right, which should be focused on ideological uh, issues, is focused completely on the constitution um, and doesn't actually want 
people from the centre right in it unless they also sign up to uh, a, a you know a pretty um, clear uh, policy against further devolution um, uh, on the constitution. So you know that that is a problem. We have never uh, had a. A government of the centre right, unlike other countries, including the Scandinavians, who have had them regularly over the last twenty years, we haven't had one, uh, and we can't have one. So yeah, those those arguments, those ideological arguments, um, are have been nowhere, and there has been a consensus all through devolution on spend, spend, spend. I mean, it has been a very social democratic, high spending parliament all the way through since ninety nine. Mm. Jeff, thought from you on that. Listen, I think what Andy says is right in terms of the options facing voters in the next election. I am most interested, I don't want to repeat what he said, but I'm most interested in in something we touched on with Douglas Ross last week, is how do the Scottish Conservatives react to a Labour victory next year? And do they, you know, take the, the bit by the teeth and say, right, okay, we need to try and reimagine our party to be more... Uh, electorally viable um, along the lines of what Andy is saying. If they don't take that opportunity, I think they'll continue to face the electoral abyss. And I know Douglas put up a good defence last week as to why that's not the case. But if they do take the opportunity to do it, it'll be interesting to see how the dynamic around Holyrood then works in advance of the 2026 elections. And I don't want to say any more because I've seen our special guest, our first special guest (laughs) has joined. um, money. So um, we haven't seen it arrive <laughs> in our bank balance yet. So um, I'm afraid you're not you're not deserving of that moniker quite yet. <laughs> <laughs> right, Sarah. Let's get a kind of broad um, reaction from you then to the budget. Uh, we've been kind of talking through the the you know the the quite. Um, uh, almost unanimous, I think, criticism. I was just looking at the national front page, which it goes with difficult decisions. Robinson delivers budget. And I think that's about the kindest front page that the finance secretary's woken up to this morning. In terms of you, who you represent, who you work with, uh, give us a sort of sense of how you're feeling about the budget. 
Okay, so I think I'm, I'm guessing you guys have covered off the the politics, but uh, you know the DFM talked about the social contract, and Ross Greer characterised it uh, as a budget for people and planet. But I think for many in the business community, it was heavy on the fair and green and, and light on the growing and prosperity. Um, I think that where all of the business representative organisations are on the same page is that growth, sustainable economic growth, is a precondition for the social prosperity and better public services that we all want to see uh, right across Scotland. And I think the overall sense is a real absence of anything which is going to help grow the economy in the longer term. You know, the government had an opportunity here to use their tax powers to support Scotland's productivity and competitiveness uh, and the kind of skilled workers and businesses and, and to promote some strategic financial planning by public services you know, moving to multi-year budgets and things like that so that they could become fit for the future rather than the firefighting. But I think there's an acknowledgement right across the piece from the business community, you know, who did try to be balanced, who who recognised that government was, was really, really up against it in terms of, you know, difficult decisions uh, and, and having to address the immediate challenges of the costs crisis and the deteriorating public finances. But I think, you know, collectively, I think the view is that increasing sustainable and inclusive growth is, is the only route to avoid that annual fire, firefighting. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that longer term focus and the greater clarity on policy and investment priorities, they could really unleash the, the private sector and the, and the public and third sectors to deliver that fair, green and growing economy that we all want. Um, but yeah, I think uh, yeah. there's 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 lots to do still <laughs> for yeah. for the government. I know I'm going to come to you in a sec, Jeff, because I think actually you might want to pick up on. I mean, there's lots in that, Sarah, and thank you for that. But I'm just one. I'm, I'm happy to fr- pick up on the specifics of the positives and negatives of that. Yeah, but. definitely, definitely, we'll come to that. But I think one of my one of the phrases that stands out there is longer term, and this is a budget that is a short term budget. This does not go beyond what 2025, which is is that odd for you, Sarah? Is that difficult then to work with and and and, and businesses to work with? Yeah, I mean, I think when we did our 10-year forward look at what Scotland should be known for in the global economy of 2030, you really do need that longer-term vision of of what Scotland's for, where we're genuinely world-class and where we're not really at the races and need to raise our game, uh, but really maintain that sort of outward-looking, forward-looking, how do we ensure that we're keeping good jobs, high-paid jobs, highly productive jobs, here in Scotland and, and getting mm-hmm. people headquartered here. Yeah. Go on, Jeff. Well, I, I, if I may just on that, that, that point about uh, the ability to be long-term in your view, and, and, and this came up at the, the breakfast this morning, uh, I do sympathise with the Scottish government. I've been on the other side of the fence, of course, when taking forward seven or eight budgets um, uh, and supporting the government do that. It's very hard to be long-term in your approach with the very nature of how Scotland is funded. When we think about the UK government and the Barnett Consequentials and the Block Grant and all the rest of it, you are working on a year-to-year basis. Now, you can still have longer-term ambitions within that, but the envelope's always changing, and it makes it hard to give that sense of certainty to certain policy areas at times. And so I do think, um, to, to be fair to the Scottish government, it's not the greatest 
way of administrating public finances. Uh, uh, so I do have a great deal of sympathy in that regard. But I wanted to put to, to just say uh, um, uh, uh, the statement that was issued in Sandy Begby's name, who's the chief executive of SFE. And, and this followed a letter that um, was signed by a number of business organizations, including the Institute of Directors, the Scottish Chambers of Commerce, the Scottish Retail Consortium, the Scottish Licensed Trade Association, um, and the Scottish Tourism Alliance. And, and he said, tax measures announced by the Scottish government make delivering growth more difficult, taking money out of the real economy, putting Scotland at a competitive disadvantage and stifling future revenues. Uh, today's budget also likely to inhibit our ability to create jobs and attract and retain talent uh, that our economy and society needs. And I just want to Sarah's reaction to that statement. Is that something that she would align with? And, and perhaps particularly if she could uh, alight on that bit about attracting talent to our country, because I think that's the big challenge for us. Are we sending a message out there that Scotland's closed for business? How do we de-risk that? I'd really be interested in Sarah's views on that. Thanks. Um, so, you know, as you know, our membership is, is wide and deep alongside businesses, large and small. We also have trade unions, local authorities, universities, colleges, and that's a wider civil society, third sector. And, and they've got a range of reactions to the specific decisions that were announced yesterday. But I think they share a view that clarity over policies and implementation for on lifelong learning, infrastructure and innovation are, are really the going to need to be the priorities to generate that stronger future economic position. But to come back to, to your specific question, I mean, I think certainly that, you know, we, we really do share that, especially around the higher tax rates, that the worry is that the highest pays role, paid roles and the commercial operations are kept outside. Of Scotland, which is the last thing we want to see Scotland being a kind of back office function. We want we want offices in Scotland to be leading innovation, leading technology, uh, leading finding profitable solutions to people and planet, so that we can export them around the world. Um, and I think the other the other key area that we obviously uh, our members share. Uh, is around the highest higher business rates that the competitors and counterparts in this sort the South have. Um, you know, I think obviously everybody was was pleased to see the freezing of the headline business rate that, that businesses had called for. Um, but that business support not being passed on and particularly to, you know, I think a retail, leisure, hospitality really feeling the pain and particularly some of that business support not being passed on to them. But yeah, I mean, I just think there's there, there's a there's a lot of a lot of common ground there that would certainly be supportive of a lot of that. Uh, but I'm very happy to say more about the kind of what the opportunities are the government has has to kind of maybe address the lifelong learning and infrastructure and innovation piece that were the, the areas that we focused on. I think that that point Sarah just made on um, you know jobs really important jobs head offices uh, and so on being here is pretty critical we'll probably pick up on this with Mary Spouse later on as well actually but um, the behavioural change that uh, Fraser of Allender Institute and the Scottish Fiscal Commission have been predicting over the last few days is behavioural change of individuals who are already here so it's things like deciding to put more money into a pension or working a little bit less or doing more salary sacrifice or whatever can bring you under a particular threshold. What it doesn't account for is the behavioural change that 
hasn't taken place yet. So, you know, it's the organisations sitting on land who could build but decide not to because of the hostile environment. It's the organisations deciding where to put, where to hire a decent level executive post um, and deciding that it's going to be too difficult to hire it in Scotland because of the tax rates. These are behavioural changes which we don't know about yet, but which are happening, we know they're happening all over the place and those decisions are being made uh, already. When you take those into account, I don't think these tax changes are going to make any money. I think they're going to lose money. But as I say, we'll we'll maybe go into that with Mary a bit later on. But one other interesting thing, uh, right back to the start of what uh, Sarah said, uh, one of my worries is that some of the people in and around the Scottish government just don't uh, reasonably well enough understand the link between the quote-unquote fair and green and uh, the and the growth agenda that we've been talking about because there is no fair and green without a growth agenda it doesn't exist so you know uh, having a budget that is able to be sold as being a social justice budget doesn't mean anything if the economy is not growing because it's economic growth that pays for the social justice you just you can't have one without the other these things uh, are linked um, and they're ever more linked now than they were before because of the fiscal framework, which again, we'll probably talk about a bit more with Mary later on, who'll be the best person to uh, describe it. But the fiscal framework has linked these two things together in a way that has never been the case for uh, a government in the past. You can't separate them in the way they're trying to do. On the um, on the social justice point, actually, Jeff, I'd, I'd taken a note here on the, um, well, criticism, actually, from John Dickey of the Child Poverty Action Group in Scotland, saying the First Minister said during his leadership campaign that he wanted to see the Scottish child pay- payment rise to £30 per week in his first budget. It is bitterly disappointing for struggling families that he's failed to deliver. Um, and so it's worth noting that Shona Robson announced that it would be raised to £26.70 in line with inflation. Again, there's a political problem there, isn't there? If this is what he ran on, he is now failing to deliver it. And it speaks to that kind of social justice, kind of larger point on welfare, well-being in other parts of the economy as well. In this case, child benefit. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to have to drop on my my colleagues and perhaps our, our, our new special guest that she's joined as well to remind me. But I, I think our child payment is still greater as it is than the rest of the UK. And that's a very good thing. Um, uh, I, 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 I think this goes back to the point I've been making for some time now, is that mm. if you're trying to be all things to all people, you inevitably end up disappointing everyone because they all expect and, and it goes back to that point about narrative, about how you present your government and the financial decisions that you take in support of your government's narrative, vision and ambition. And I don't think that that's been done well enough. So there isn't that ability to turn around and say to uh, John Dickey, absolutely right to make that claim and that criticism, but say, look, we've done as much as we can or in this particular envelope that we have. We want to do more, but I am focusing this government on X, Y, and Z, green industrialization of our country, whatever it is. And that lack of vision to me is what's really missing from this budget discussion. And there's still time, there's still stages to go through, but it's not been the most auspicious of starts for the SP, in my opinion. And I think they need to really get that vision. I was always aware in my eight years in government what we were trying to achieve still be facing criticism, still be facing um, um, uh, uh, a lot of commentary saying we weren't doing enough in certain areas, but we always had that overarching vision to say, but that's what we're trying to achieve in the long term. 
I feel that's missing. Yeah. Sarah, just a, a kind of final thought then from you at this point is, you know, as we head into Christmas, as we head into the new year, what do what do businesses where where does this budget get them to? Does it does it advance their cause? Does it help them progress? Does it help them plan? What does a new year look like for business in light of this budget? Difficult, I think, is the short answer. Perhaps I was quite I was keen to come back. I think there's certainly opportunities. Mm-hmm. You know, for, the government has to 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 set out how it's going to improve the attractiveness of working in Scotland for for homegrown and international Scotland. You know, Andy's spot on in terms of Scotland needing to be more attractive uh, to leadership and management talent if more of our companies are to grow and to compete globally uh, and more international businesses are, are going to invest here. Um, but I think, you know, it absolutely has to be about that partnership working, doesn't it, right across business and civil society. Uh, that That's a real condition um, to drive the growth is going to be that precondition for the better public services and, and thriving third sector. Um, Jeff, in terms of the vision piece, I think absolutely, I think we would very much endorse what you're seeing there. I think the three big things for us in terms of those strategic priorities uh, to grow the economy uh, has to be around, first of all, lifelong learning and skills, absolutely at the top of the list um, for respective members of all the business representative organisations. But investing in and reforming the education and skills system um, to give that, that opportunity to people throughout their working lives is, is top of our list. And actually fund colleges and universities at the level that supports their, their, uh, that supports and sustains their contributions to prosperity. Um, so that planning for for skills reform. Secondly, infrastructure, um, both the type and speed. We'd called in our budget submission the government to tackle barriers for all developments, including funding for the planning system and and streamlining. So it was good to see the planning reform piece there. But we're obviously keen to see a detailed timetable to deliver infrastructure projects like E9 Dueling, E96, the new ferries, a favourite topic on this podcast, (laughs) and cutting the time for grid connections. These are the big infrastructure investments that are required. And then finally, I think the innovation piece, Mm. you know, that investing in research and innovation Targeting opportunities from Innovate UK funding, uh, getting involved with things like Horizon Europe. You know, it was really good to hear about, you know, the commitment to opportunities for efficiencies in the public sector. Uh, and that can be achieved without a loss of jobs and innovation is the, the, the answer to that. And, um, you know, I think we did some really interesting work about data and health um, and where the economic opportunities are there. So there's so much to do. And so much opportunity, but it takes all of us. That we have to keep those that dialogue open with government um, to to try and get some of this in place and get cracking. But yeah, it's uh, the the verdict I think collectively from mm. business is is not is not been positive. Okay. Wow. Uh, quite a message to send. Sarah, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining the podcast, and thanks for being a fan of the podcast as well. That's very good of you. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much to Sarah Cham for getting the business perspective on things in. Right, let's welcome to the podcast Mary Spowage, Director at the Fraser of Allender Institute. Uh, Mary, hello, a busy week for you. Thank you for joining us. 
You're welcome. Yes, it's been very busy. <laughs> what a shame. Uh, well, we're very grateful for your time. Uh, right. First of all, then, let's just clarify. Uh, Jeff was talking about the Scottish child uh, payment and that it was the highest in the UK. Let's just live fact check him on the podcast. Is he correct? So the Scottish child payment doesn't exist in other parts of the UK. So the Scottish government have chosen to introduce a, a new payment. It's based on eligibility for elements of UC. So the sort of the UK system is used to determine eligibility for it for low income families. But it is um, a sort of I suppose it's quite an innovative policy for um, the Scottish government to directly transfer income to low-income households with children, which is one of the key policies they've got for tackling child poverty, which, you know, they've got statutory targets to do that. So, so Jeff, was, Jeff was wrong, basically. No, 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 Andy, Andy, if it, if it doesn't <laughs> exist anywhere, if it doesn't exist anywhere else in the UK, it is by definition higher than everywhere else in the UK. So Jeff was right. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you had to say, Mary. Yeah. Okay. It's a, it's a significant policy, you know. It will cost. Thank you. I agree. Yeah, northwards of four hundred million pounds a year. So, um, you know, it, it is a big, a big chunk of money that they're choosing to spend. And because it isn't anywhere else in the UK, um, there's no associated funding from the UK government because it's yeah. devolved because it didn't exist. So they're having to fund that out of other parts of their budget. So. You know, they've chosen to prioritise that, but it means other areas are going to have to take the strain and constrain financial. So by my rough calculation, then, if it needs 400 and odd million, in order to pay for that, they would have to put the accounting for behavioural change and the top rate up to about 127%. Is that about right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely so, into areas of laughter. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my days, the laughter. Oh, there's, there's, lo- there's lots of laughter. There's lots of laughter on this podcast. Right. I actually, Mary, you've, you've brought it up because this has been doing my Twitter feed. It's going round the bend on the, on the curve that you've, the laughter curve that you've just mentioned. Can you explain it to us, please? Because others will be seeing this in their Twitter feed as a result of the, the budget yesterday. So talk, tell us what it is. What does it mean? So whenever you make, um, tax changes, uh, on something like income tax, um, you look at the tax base as it currently is and you see, well, if I put a penny on this rate, I will raise this much more in tax based on the current tax base and what they earn and what they pay in tax. But all of the evidence shows that people don't just do exactly what they would have done um, had the previous tax rate prevailed. They may change their behaviour. They may choose to reduce their earnings a bit because they don't feel it's worth it. They might not take an extra position. You know, they might put more money into their pension. Um, which reduces their taxable income. All these things are things that happen and they're natural human responses to um, you feeling that you're not getting as much home in your take-home pay. Mm-hmm. So these things happen much more higher up the income distribution because obviously there's much higher incentives. The more people higher up the income distribution pay way more tax than those further down. So those in the top rate um, and the most recent set of outturn data make up less than 1% of taxpayers, but they pay 18% of tax. You know, so they pay lots and lots of tax. Uh, they're very important for our tax base, um, but they have a bigger response because of that. So it's more there's more incentive for them to think: Is it really worth me doing X and Y, or will I put more into my pension or or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, and what happens is you go up the income distribution, and therefore there's higher rates of tax that are levied. You get to a point where those responses could start to offset a huge amount of the tax that you think a change would raise. 
And the 48p rate that has been put in by the Scottish government yesterday, and indeed the 47p one that they put in last year, are good examples of this. Where the vast majority of what you think you could raise if, if nobody changed their behaviour are eroded away by what the evidence tells us about behavioural responses. Um, so we've ended up in this position for the 48p change that the, the Fiscal Commission think it will raise £8 million, when the static costing, as we would call it, if you assume people didn't do anything, you know, is, is about £60 million. Okay. So you erode away a lot of it. So the question for people like us who get excited about this sort of things, you know, policy costings and static costings and all this stuff, is to what point do you get where that becomes negative? So essentially, mm-hmm. you get to the point where you bring in less revenue, even the working <clears throat> rate prevails. Okay. Um, and, you know, you can see that going from 60 to 8 is already pretty close huge. to zero. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it, it's reasonable to say we could be pretty close to that tipping point. With and, uh, and the thing I said just before Mary came on the podcast as well is that that accounts for the behavioural change of those who hear just now. What it doesn't, what it's not able to predict is the decisions that people will make who are not here at the moment because of the tax environment. So the people who don't invest, don't come, don't take a job here and so on because of that. I think it's also worth mentioning just because the Laffer curve has been getting a little bit of exposure on Twitter and stuff lately as well is, um, you know, he, he was a Reagan, uh, Arthur Laffer was a, a, a Reagan era economist, but the concept of lower taxes raising more revenue predates Arthur Laffer. In fact, one of the more famous proponents of it is actually John F. Kennedy, who was very clear about the fact that if you have high tax and low revenue, the best way to increase your tax revenues is to cut your taxes. So this is not a sort of uh, right-wing concept, and it's not a concept invented by Arthur Laffer. This is something which has existed in Western economies for a long, long time. And as we can see by both what um, uh, Mary's team at Fraser Valander have put together on the behavioural change for the so-called advanced rate uh, and what SSC put together on the behavioural change in the top rate. It's real. It works. It happens. Um, and, uh, you know, there's too little recognition of that, I think. It does happen. And I think, um, you know, as I say, for each individual person, it's perfectly natural for you to think, well, mm-hmm. is it really worth my world in extra hours if... Um, you know, you look at that rate now between 100 and 125, where you're also getting the personal allowance withdrawn, which is a UK government decision. But, mm-hmm. you know, these two policies of the 45p rate and the withdrawal of the personal allowance are, are combining to have an almost 70% marginal tax rate. So if, if each pound you earn, you're getting 30p back. And that's not taking into account other things that you have to pay, pay tax on. You know, would you bother earning mm. a few more grand? Would you not maybe think about dropping a day? I mean, it's perfectly reasonable for any individual person. Or, as is probably happening, actually, um, would you put more into your pension to reduce your... Mm. Yeah. And again, if we go back to some of the problems we have identified before, we talked a little bit before about workers. So one of the huge issues we've got at the moment is lack of ability to attract NHS consultants because there are pension problems and various other problems with, uh, I mean, no, we've got capacity problems in the NHS. That is a very real issue right at that number for consultants in the NHS who could very easily say, you know what, I'm going to go from five days to four. I'm going to go from five days to four because there's no point in this anymore. And if they do that, what does that do to the NHS? Lots of unintended consequences here. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, if I may just add, I mean, Mary and I were at the same event this morning and I thought a really interesting theme that emerged from the discussion was about the ability for us to attract talent, not just from London. And I think, you know, um, the Deputy First Minister was was making comparison between Scotland and London and, and how <clears throat> costly it is to have a house there and to live in London. But actually, other cities in the UK, so Birmingham, Manchester, Newcastle, you know, given that we live in a world like we're having a podcast over teams just now, I mean, that can easily be the case for many, you know, young professionals seeking to get in life that says, well, actually, I can work from Manchester, commute up for a couple of days to Edinburgh, to Aberdeen, to Glasgow, and still have my domicile in uh, uh, England. And that's another potential unintended consequence. I actually asked the Deputy First Minister, are you looking at this? Are you looking at and assessing this going forward? You've taken a fundamental decision on greater diversions with the rest of the UK. Is your government assessing what the impacts of that should be? And she seemed to intimate that they would be looking at that. I think they have to do it and do it urgently because clearly that will inform policy making going forward. I don't know, Mary, if you, you took the same sense from, from that discussion. Yeah, I would say, though, that all of these things are really difficult to do um, well because understanding what would have happened in the absence of the policy particularly when you're talking about people who would have come to Scotland who otherwise who will not now and things like that. It's really difficult to get mm. factual, as we would call it. You know, what would have happened in the absence of this policy? It's mm. challenging to do. It's easier on things like, um, you know, uh, working fewer hours and that sort of thing. There's a better comparison book one can get from perhaps from England and so on. But this is more difficult. So it is tricky to do. But, um, you know, um, the DF did say this morning that, you know, they're looking, they're examining what's happened over the last few years. But I will say, you know, it has to happen. And then the response needs to happen for us to be able to look back and analyse yeah. what has happened. You know, so it'll be a few years maybe down the line before we're really sure what the impact has been of, of these differentials between Scotland and England um, and the impact that they're maybe having on the overall tax take, you know, and, you know, this will be a really great evidence base for, you know, other countries looking at tax differentials <laughs> in the future. Um, mm -hmm. But, it, you know, it's is, it is very specific, you know, Scotland has only got control over non-savings, non-dividend income tax. That's important because it's less movable than dividend income and so on. If people choose to incorporate, um, you know, that kind of takes them out of the Scottish system altogether because that's still reserved. Um, and obviously we have a very integrated labour market and economy with England um, in the way that maybe other countries don't in, in the same in the same way with other countries, which is quite a lot of the evidence that's that's looked at. So um, so it's difficult. It's going to be difficult. I, I guess I would want to manage expectations that we'll ever know for sure mm, whether yeah, yeah. this is happening. And, you know, we are hearing anecdotally that people feel it might be happening and there might be a tipping point here. Um, but, you know, whether we'll ever know kind of empirically for sure, I, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. I want to ask you, Mary, about the kind of relationship between the t income tax changes that we've talked about and that are definitely, you know, a real main focal point post-budget, and council tax. Uh, we've talked about the kind of council tax freeze in the podcast in weeks gone by, and I just want you to help us understand where we are at post-budget uh, in terms of, yeah, I think it is important to do this, in terms of pounds in the pocket of people who are you know paying income tax and council tax in Scotland, 
Um, where are we at with that council tax freeze? Because there is one suggestion, if I can put this to you, from Paul Johnson at the IFS, the Institute for Fiscal Studies. The Scottish government spent 50% more on freezing, i.e. real terms cut on council tax, than it will raise from the new higher rates of income tax it announced. Um, council tax freeze, of course, is worth most to those in most valuable properties. So can you just break down for us a bit where we're at now with council tax versus income tax? So Paul is right. Um, you know, the council tax freeze will not benefit those on the lowest incomes. Um, the most, um, most people on very low incomes don't pay council tax because they receive the, you know, they, they're out, they're lifted out of council tax due to the benefit system. Um, and so it, it sort of benefits those in, in higher value properties. So it is, um, not something that benefits those on the lowest incomes. Um, Thinking about the source, you know, if, if you're a household in a particular part of the income distribution, thinking about how tax changes will impact you plus the changes that might happen on your council tax. And so I suppose to what extent you're, you're better or worse off is quite a complicated question mm-hmm. because council tax is levied on households and income taxes on individuals. So it depends on the makeup of the household and um, to what extent uh, that these things can be looked at. Um, but we did think that maybe if it's you're just talking about um, households with one earners, you're maybe talking about a tipping point about eighty thousand, where somebody's going to, you know, sort of benefit more, um, sort of benefit less from the income tax rise versus the council tax fees. Um, but it's kind of hard to do because it depends on the makeup of the household, as, as I said. But it's definitely mm-hmm. true that the government has said we're going to spend one hundred and forty million funding a council tax freeze, assuming essentially that councils would have raised council tax by 5%, and we know some are planning to raise it by more than that. Um, and they're also not funding the um, what some had assumed would be going ahead, which was the, the, the consulted on increasing the multipliers further up the distribution. So I think some councils were assuming that would also go ahead. And so we had estimated if they were going to fund that, and fully funding it, it would be more like 300 million. But the government have decided to do 140, which, you know, is is sort of roughly double what they're bringing in from these income tax changes. Um, and I must admit, given, I don't think that the, the council tax freeze has pleased many people <laughs> in terms of a policy decision. And obviously the fact it was local government weren't consulted mm-hmm. following the Berry House Agreement and all that hasn't gone down particularly well either. Um, and, you know, as, a, as an overall strategy, as a coherent strategy, it does seem, well, it doesn't seem coherent uh, in terms of the strategy and why you're prioritising account of tax fees, which doesn't benefit those on the lowest income, yet putting up income tax. Um, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us, Mary. Great to have you on the podcast. Uh, thanks to Mary and to Sarah for just breaking down some of the kind of headlines and all of this. And thank you to you as well. You were sending in questions on Twitter, most of which I think we've kind of actually ticked off. Um, Lewis was asking, will the tax rise lead to some of the best talented high earners being reluctant to move to Scotland? Definitely talked about that. What does this budget do to stimulate economic growth? Asked Audrey. Well, I think we mentioned that at the start of the of the pod as well, when it comes to the relationship between growth and what we've heard this week. Uh, Myrtle Fraser as well, the uh, Conservative MSP, was keen to have his um, his say. Uh, do the Scottish Financial Commission predictions of the impact of behaviour change on tax take from higher earners mean that any further increases would be self-defeasing? And he mentions Arthur Laffer. So we've definitely done that one as well for Myrtle Fraser. Uh, thanks for all your questions. Um, guys, I suppose where are we at? So post-budget, <sighs> you know, we heard from Sarah that businesses are largely facing challenges here. 
uh, we heard from Mary that individuals are really going to have you know consider where they stand after all of this as well and people may make those behavioral changes putting more money into pensions not not working extra not taking a pay rise you know high, you know doing their best to avoid slipping into paying more tax Andy, i don't what words would you use to describe where we are at today post budget um i just don't think anybody wins from this. I mentioned something called the fiscal framework earlier, and I will <clears throat> probably no value in getting into it that deeply because very, very few people understand what it is or how it works, um, apparently including at the Scottish Parliament. But uh, <laughs> as, the, as, the, as the Scottish Parliament was given more power... Spicy. They had to... <laughs> there had to be, effectively, as, as people will know, there's the block grant that gets given to Scotland uh, and Scotland spends. But as the Scottish Parliament increased its tax-varying powers um, and effectively kept that portion of tax money in Scotland without it going to Westminster to then get transferred back up, there had to be some sort of mechanism to cater for, effectively, the money that Westminster had lost by it not going down there before it came back up, right? That's what the fiscal framework is. It's a mechanism to create effectively a different size of block grant to cater for the fact that we have tax varying powers here. But what that made is a significant change for Scottish finance secretaries in that, in essence, it made their budgets and tax decisions matter a lot more than they used to. So they didn't used to matter that much. You could tinker about and muck, muck about a little bit with uh, income tax here and there. It didn't really do anything because you had the block grant as this massive backup. That's not there anymore to anything like the same degree. So your tax decisions now really matter. And I don't think the government has adjusted to that world where their tax decisions matter. They are still behaving in a pre-fiscal framework world where your tax decisions, in essence, didn't matter that much. And now they do. And that is why we are now where we are, because they are doing things that are having significant behavioural change. They're not actually increasing the size of the pie. They're not increasing the size of the pie through their tax changes. Their tax changes are now for show. They are not for do. Yeah, Jeff, I mean, where are we at? I, I, yeah, very briefly, uh, Andy, you mentioned um, increasing the size of the pie. I'm waiting to go to my True North Christmas party where there will be mixed beet pies and I want to get there pretty quickly. So I will be brief. <laughs> I uh, want to talk about the pure politics of this and what happens now. So you asked, where are we at? Well, I think the Scottish government has to show a lot of visibility, get their ministers out there as much as possible uh, into the new year and defend and where they can promote this budget. We didn't talk a lot about the good things in this budget. There's some really good news there on the uh, 67 million, the first advance of the 500 million fund on uh, uh, anchoring a domestic offshore wind supply chain. These are the types of things they need to get out there and talk about the positives of their budget. Now, what we didn't really get into is the fact that this is there's still going to be three stages of debate on this budget before it's passed. Will the Scottish government have a little bit of flexibility? Will they've kept a little bit of money back down the, the side of the couch to say, right, this is actually hurting us. Can we help nullify this? Can we help out uh, where there's a, an opportunity to de-risk some of these policies? Is there something that we want to give extra support to through the stage process to try and give a sense of listening to Parliament, listening to the people and the stakeholder groups that we've mentioned on this call? But they have to be visible. You've made the decisions now. Go out and defend it and where you can promote it and at least make a fist of this in what is going to be a very, very important year politically. 
Jeff and Andy, thank you both very much. Enjoy your Christmas party, Jeff. That sounds thank like, you. Uh, that means that we'll probably be getting um, drunk texts from Jeff later on to express his love for us, Andy. That's what tends to happen, isn't it? I get that. Every night doesn't need a Christmas party for that. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. That's Claus, just, that is just weird, honestly. <laughs> Always like a text from Mrs. Claus. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> the dancer to the prancer. <laughs> Uh, right, good. Uh, that is where our bu- <laughs> that's where our budget episode needs to come to an abrupt end. I think. Uh, thank you both very much, and we will speak to you soon. Uh, thanks for listening.